Welcome to episode two of Passive Attack, the Asset First podcast, joined as always by Steve Williams, head of the Investment Committee for Asset First. Steve, first question this week, with the no deal option now seemingly off the table, is leaving with a deal currently the most likely option for Brexit? I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows, but... um... In my view, no deal is still a live possibility. A, a general election is, is well, a delay, uh, obviously, has been mandated by law. Boris Johnson is remarkably relaxed about that for some reason. I don't know whether they've got something up their sleeves, but he's sticking to his conviction that he's not going to ask for a extension beyond the 31st of October. So we'll see, probably see shortly after... Parliament reopens in mid-October, and then, of course, we've got the EU summit, so we'll see what happens after that. But it seems to me that a general election is um, pretty likely. I, I don't think there's anybody out there that would disagree with that. But the question is, when do we get a general election, and, and what process uh, brings about that general election? Presumably, as far as we can tell at the moment, general election, Tories win, but probably not with sufficient majority and have to go into a co- coalition. Is that what, what you would see? Um so the, the polling has been all over the place for a couple of years. So it's very difficult. The, the Tories lead uh, Labour in the polls uh, as we speak. The bookies have got a general election outcome. The, the most likely general election outcome is priced at a no overall majority. So no overall majority has got to be some coalition of some kind. In my view, a coalition of the right involving the Conservatives, the DUP and the Brexit Party uh, is the most likely outcome. Following that, I've got a sneaking suspicion that the Conservatives might win a majority and then possibly a coalition of the left of some kind is a, is a good probability. I think at the moment the bookies have got Labour, a Labour majority down at something like 10 to 1. So that's a sort of implied probability of about 9%. The implied probability for the no overall majority is, is something like 60%. So most likely, is at least according to the bookies, is a, is, is a hung parliament of some kind. And if the final result of this is a deal, leaving with a deal or not leaving, but specifically not crashing out, with hindsight, will we discover that the pound is now undervalued? And if so, what effect will that have on large, mid and small cap so, in the UK? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the pound is the, is the major transfer mechanism uh, for all of the political uncertainty that we see surrounding Brexit and, uh, and the general election and, and possibly even like, there's a reasonable amount of uncertainty about the potential for a Labour government to um, impose some fairly market unfriendly policies too. So there's a, there's a fair bit of, of political uncertainty priced into the pound, which is which is fair, I think. It depends how you want to value the pound. If you do it on a sort of uh, parity basis, then uh, I think if anybody's come across the Big Mac Index which compares the price of McDonald's Big Mac in, in various countries. I think according to a measure similar to that, then the, the pound is about 30% undervalued on that basis. I I think what people are forgetting in, in most of the commentary that surrounds the exchange rate is just how strong the dollar is. So the news articles and a lot of commentators I've seen are focusing on the, the pound-dollar exchange rate. If you look at the dollar-euro exchange rate, you see a similar pattern. Not not quite so extreme, obviously, but the dollar is a, is is riding high against a whole basket of currencies right now. So there's two sides of this coin, coin but um, certainly the pound's got some potential to rise in the event. Let, let's say the two extremes are uh, uh, that we leave 
the European Union with, with no deal at all and we leave fairly soon so that the preparations are uh, roughly in a, on a par with where they are now rather than say two years down the line when we can we can be fully prepared for a deal. But let, let's say we get a, a, a no deal Brexit on the 31st of October and, and then compare that with say uh, a, a full uh, revoking of, of Article uh, 50. So yeah, I'm guessing that Article 50 would take us back somewhere to where the pound was prior to the referendum uh, uh, night. So there was a bit of a decline in the pound prior to the referendum as as the possibility of a, of a no deal came into play. I, I think there'll be some residual political uncertainty if Article 50 is revoked, uh, depending on the nature of the government that revokes Article 50. So let's say the Liberal Democrats, which are the most clear-cut political party at the moment, that, you know, that, that, their message is fairly clear. They want to revoke Article 50, come what may. If they get a very strong majority, then you know the, the, there'll be very little political uncertainty attached to it. But if it's a coalition of the left, that coalition of the left will be fairly loose. So the extent to which the pound will gain will be tempered by ongoing political uncertainty. In fact, if, we, if we've got a coalition of either the left or of the right, it, it increases the chances that we'll, we'll get a, a, a yet another general election reasonably soon afterwards. So some political uncertainty is, is going to be um, residual, even in the, in the very best case scenario, as far as Remainers would be concerned. So in those instances... Uh, you'd expect that to act as a sort of headwind for FTSE 100 companies, just as the FTSE 100 has done reasonably well uh, as the pound has declined because of the re, um, revaluation of overseas earnings, then you'd expect that to act as a headwind beyond that. But maybe not quite so much, because once the uncertainty is taken away, we'll see a, a reasonable amount of inward investment in the, in the UK economy and FTSE 100 will benefit. The UK equity market is fairly unloved. I, I think there's a reasonable amount of money that would flow into it once the uncertainty is, is removed. So it's not uh, it's not an apocalyptic view for, for, for the FTSE 100, even if the pound goes up uh, by a significant amount, in my view. Uh, and then also the Article 50 cancellation would, would probably lead to a, a reasonably significant increase in, in mid-cap and small-cap stocks too. So, so it's a reasonably influential in terms of those stocks. And then on the opposite side, uh, I, I think the most, probably the most positive thing that would be attached to either of those outcomes is that the uncertainty is drained away. And as long as we take the uncertainty away, I, I think the prospects for the UK stock market are reasonably firm on a, on a sort of medium term basis in any case. But yeah, probably on a on a no deal Brexit, there's, there's some, a, a little bit more of a fall in the pound to come, maybe not too much. I think a lot of the bad news that, uh, with regard to a no-deal Brexit is priced into the market. There's certainly some more fall to come in the pound if, if, if that's what happens, in which case you'd expect the FTSE to do okay-ish in those environments because of the, well, for the same reason they, the, the, that we spoke about earlier, but maybe the mid-cap and small-cap, the value that we're seeing in mid-cap and small-cap, maybe that'll take a wee bit longer to manifest um, in those circumstances. So, Steve, your immediate outlook, as measured by your growth model, suggests that the returns available in the UK and particularly Europe and to a lesser extent Japan are more attractive than those from from the US. Can you just talk about how you come to these return figures and, and what the view is for worldwide equities? So it's a variation on a discount cash flow model, so a dividend growth model or Gordon growth model if people are familiar with those kind of things. So it's a, it's a, it's a fairly speculative uh, approach to modelling where we see the the major indexes at this moment in time, and the way that we do it is is try and isolate what we think is a a, a reasonably acceptable rate of return. So if you, if you take the UK for example, and let's say you've got a time frame of ten years to invest, you can invest for ten years in a uh, in the ten year gilt, 
that's going to give you a, uh, a redemption yield of about half a percent. And it's relatively safe. In t- you're going to get your money back in 10 years' time and a return somewhere along the lines of 0.5. It's not precise, but that's that's our benchmark. But if you're going to invest in the equity markets, you're going to require a uh, return over and above 0.5% to compensate you for the kind of risks that you... Uh, uh, the additional risks that you're going to see along the way in that in that ten year period, including some you know some a lot more volatility in the in the price and potential for big significant drawdowns at thirty or forty percent in the interim. So I think the equity risk premium somewhere about four point seven percent, something like that. So our minimal expectable return for the UK market would then be the zero point five percent that you get from gilts, plus the the four point seven percent risk premium. So. Your uh, your minimal acceptable return over the next ten years in that instance would be five point two. So that's the minimum level. And then if we engage a sort of uh, the speculative growth model, we can try and ascertain where we think markets might deliver um, over the next ten years. And at the moment, uh, I think we've got uh, equity market return in the UK at a little over seven percent, which is a a significant premium. Uh, over and above our, our minimal acceptable return, which indicates that the UK market at this moment in time is is, is somewhat undervalued. So uh, that's how that, that feeds in. Moving on to across the Atlantic now, uh, Trump has recently announced the decision to, to delay the rise in extra tariffs on China. Is this a sign that perhaps the trade war is coming to the end? Uh, no, I don't think so. It depends what you mean by the trade war. There, there, there's certainly, there are certainly differences uh, in the American approach and the Chinese approach that, is, that just cannot be taken away. So the kind of things that the American administration require of the Chinese administration are just not, they're just not deliverable. So uh, for the Americans to ask for the Chinese to cease state aid uh, across industry is just, uh, it's not deliverable. They're a communist system. That's... Um, state aid and state ownership of uh, of the means of production is, is really in their DNA. So so this is going to be with us for a long time. The, 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 more, the more volatile aspects of this surround technology. So we'll see where we go. I, again, I think that's a slow, long, slow burner. But there might be a, some kind of cordial agreement on some, some of the less uh, some of the less difficult issues around headline trade, you know, the purchase of soybeans and things like that. That's um, we might see uh, some kind of agreement on, on that front, but ultimately this is going to be with us for a, for a very long time indeed. Also on the US, looking at the Schiller PE ratio on the S&P 500, in the last 100 years or so, there's only been two previous occasions when it's been significantly ab- above the long-term range, 1929 and, and the late 90s. Should we be fearful, therefore, of just how high this PE ratio is? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of reasons to be, perhaps not fearful, but there are a number of reasons to be cautious. I, I, I think the equity markets in general are characterised by elevated valuations. The Schiller PE in particular is, is is not a very useful market timing tool. Certainly, it's not something that we would use to market time. Uh, just because you have a high valuation according to the Schiller PE does not mean that equity markets are, are, are about to fall. There's nothing to stop the Schiller PE going higher. Indeed, uh, it's it's a little lower than it has been in the recent past. So I think maybe it, it, it reached 33 relatively recently and something like that. So it's down at 29 now. So so we've seen an improvement in, in valuations. But I, I certainly don't expect uh, stock markets to collapse simply because the, uh, the Schiller PE is reasonably high. We, we use it as a sort of gauge 
about whether we're getting any tailwinds or headwinds in, in equity market returns. When the Shiller PE is high, when valuations are elevated, we expect that to act as a, as a headwind to, to returns in the long term. So uh, you, get, you get bumper bonanza returns when, uh, when valuations are low and you get slower, lower returns when valuations are high. And it's difficult to say how elevated valuations are because, like I said, there's nothing to stop them going much, much higher than they are today. All, all I can say is that we observe that market valuations are not unusually low um, or low, uh, in which case, in those conditions, we take on uh, significant amounts of risk. But uh, we're not there. We're, indeed, we're in the opposite where market valuations are elevated. So we use that as, as one of our guides. So we're relatively cautious because of it, but, but certainly not, not overly cautious, certainly not fearful because of it. Okay, thank you. Um, so not overly cautious. New investors are continually overly cautious on investing all at one go. Uh, there's so much visible potential headwind in the market now in terms of UK and US. And uh, advisors are meeting resistance for investors jumping in at these levels. What would you say to those investors? Well, I would focus on the financial planning, you know, the first and foremost, how much risk is it appropriate for investors to take, given their financial objectives, given their time frame, given their near term liabilities, all those kind of things that financial planners are so good at. That'll give you a reference for how much risk you want to take in a portfolio. And you can vary that risk to some extent. I would, my observation, my personal observations are that uh, it, it, so long as people have got a reasonably long time frame, they tend towards more caution or being overcautious, uh, in my view. So I, I would watch out for that one. Shortfall risk, uh, as far as the, in the financial planning con- context, uh, is just as big a risk as as, as volatility risk and, and sequencing risk and all these other risks that financial planners deal with on a daily basis. So there's another observation. And one of the reasons I'm quite keen on UK equities at this moment in time, and, and also correspondingly German equities, I'm reasonably keen on the German market too. And the reason for that is that it's a fair amount of political uncertainty. And you certainly can get, or, or at least the opportunities for higher growth in the long term are present during periods of instability, during periods of uncertainty. When there are fewer investors buying assets, that tends to be a better time to buy assets. So it's difficult in one regard, but you have to recognise it. If, if people are reluctant to purchase, then you know that's probably a good time to purchase because the prices are driven uh, to lower levels. So it's it's a difficult one, but you've you've got a the only um, the only resolution to to all of those risks is 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 formed during conversation with investors. Yes, yeah, so basically, put the onus back on the financial advisor. I think one issue is that we, yes, it's a good idea to get in sooner, but. You've got always the worry of first review meeting with client and with hindsight uh, markets are 12% lower in a year's time and the client's looking at you and thinking, well, thanks a lot. But it's all part of the game, as you say, if the financial planning suggests they can take the risk and uh, they've got sufficient time scale, then they should be able to ride through this just as they did back in um, 2008-9. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. The, the potential for a 10% loss is uh, is, in my view... A very frequent type risk. I would expect a, a ten percent decline somewhere along the way on a sort of almost annual basis. So um, that, that's not to say they're going to go down ten percent a year. It, it just means that you know that the sort of gains and, and losses in that order are, are really very 
uh, very frequent in the equity markets. That's not something we try and hedge. Um, so it's 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 certainly there. Hopefully, your relationship with a with an underlying investor is 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 forged in something a little bit more robust than uh, uh, whatever the equity markets might do on a twelve month basis. A prospective financial advisor client of Asset First was recently looking at our uh, fund performance and seeing that actually all five of our risk grader portfolios continue to deliver uh, top quartile performance over all periods pretty much since 2008 compared to the RTMA um, risk targeted multi-asset sectors and his question was how repeatable is that performance have we been lucky to be consistently so high and can he be confident in buying into portfolios that have such a really quite remarkable track record? Well, you'd probably say for buying a, a, a set of portfolios with a remarkable track record than a poor track record. But um, <laughs> Neil Woodford might have said that. <laughs> Indeed. Um, it, we've got a, a relatively straightforward approach to asset allocation. We try not to overcomplicate things. We try and hedge out only those risks that need hedging out. So significant drawdowns in, in equity markets. We, um, we, we temper the portfolios with a view to to mitigating some of the uh, full extent of any any large drawdowns, like I said, a, a sort of ten percent decline here and there is just is simply not something that we are we are overly uh, animated by. But the bigger declines, we we hedge out through our approach to asset allocation. We keep costs low, uh, we keep our activity levels uh, to a relatively low basis, and we 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 buy funds that we think um, can do a, a job fairly specifically. And we're long time long term holders of those funds as well. So I think we do some of the simple stuff uh, right and we stick to it. And, you know, in that comparison with other peers, there are all kinds of different techniques towards um, towards asset location. One of them might be sort of uh, volatility targeting, in which case your um, your exposure to risky assets is, is really a function of how volatile those markets are. So uh, let's say, for example, you've got very low volatility in, in the stock market. That's often accompanied by... Uh, strong returns, i.e. strong returns have then led to low risks or at least low volatility. Uh, and what happens is that uh, some of those that are volatility targeting have their, have an increased allocation to equities during uh, the periods that have just seen some very rapid returns. And then as equity markets become more volatile and returns lower, so high volatility is attached to, to falling equity markets or at least low returns in equity markets, they might have uh, less exposure, but that's that's probably the wrong thing to do. What we want is is reasonable exposure ahead of any uh, increases in the index, increases in in equity prices, and we want uh, slightly lower uh, exposure prior to any uh, declines. I'm not saying we're getting the timing right, but simply by not chasing uh, a volatility target, we um, we're automatically in a better position. So there are some structural reasons why you might expect an approach like ours to do. Uh, better in in the sort of mixed times that contain sort of you know if you're a long-term investor you're going to see equity market increases you're going to see equity market declines you're going to see uh, bumper returns and you can see really poor returns over the over the reasonable period of time and and we think we've got we've got an approach that sails through each of those conditions it, our approach is not optimal for any one condition but it is it is optimized for a series of conditions so i, I think we've got a We've got a reasonable advantage in that approach, or at least that's how it's proved so far. So that brings us to the close today. Thank you for listening, and please tune in next month. Goodbye.